Okay. Good morning, everybody. Um, let's let's uh, open up. You know, I'm, once again, I think the I don't think there's any new newcomers here, right? That would want the class over there. So, but if if you're looking for it, it's over there. Um, let's open up one more prayer, and uh, we can get into our Daniel study. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and we just give you praise for another opportunity to be in your word. I thank you, Lord, for uh, the book of Daniel. I thank you for the truth that it contains, and I pray, Lord, that you would just give us uh, wisdom as we, as we study through it. I thank you, Lord, for our opportunity to meet together as a body of believers, and I just pray, Lord, that you would bless um, our study here this morning. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Book of Daniel is my... Oh, oh wait, wait, one one. Got my glasses. That that might come in handy. As I look down at my notes, I notice I don't have my glasses. So, all right. Book of Daniel. Um, this morning we're still in chapter one. Um, Lord willing, we will finish up chapter one this morning. That's the plan. But we started looking at this chapter last week. Uh, where we just started looking into the events that wrapped themselves around this, this book before we were introduced to those who will serve as really the main characters of the book of Daniel. And that will be Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They were four boys from among many who were taken captive from the land of Judah, taken back to Babylon to be entered into King Nebuchadnezzar's personal training-slash-brainwashing program. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had the chief of his eunuchs, his officials, Ashpenaz, pick the noble youths from Judah. And he had criteria for that. They needed to be good-looking and fit. They needed to be smart and well-educated. And they were cultured enough to serve in the king's court. And he had them, he had them bring them back to Babylon. And two things to remember about these captives is that they estimate that there were probably somewhere between 60 and 70. I'll just use the, uh, the 70 number. Um, 60 to 70 or 70 of these young men taken. And their ages at the time were estimated to be somewhere between 13 and 18 years old. So I usually just go right for the middle and I say they were 15 years old. So there were quite a few of these young men taken and they were taken from their families and everything familiar that they would have known, and they were young and impressionable kids. Just perfect for what Nebuchadnezzar had in store for them. Now in Babylon, they were going to start a three-year program where they were going to become good Babylonians. Uh, they were going to serve in the king's court and be an asset to the king as he eventually took all of the countrymen back to Babylon as his captives. Remember, there's a, there were three different phases of the Babylonian captivity that spanned 20 years, and Nebuchadnezzar eventually took everyone back, everyone except the, the poorest people. As a part of his program with these captives, there were several things that were going to happen. The first thing was that the captives were going to learn the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. They were going to be well-schooled in Chaldean or Babylonian education. They were going to be, uh, going to be well-taught in a variety of different disciplines. The second thing is they were going to be given the food of kings, and I mean this literally. Nebuchadnezzar ordered that these youths would feed from his own table, from the food of his own table, the stuff that he would eat. Given the choice foods, the king's wine to drink, 
And they were going to eat the same food that Nebuchadnezzar himself would eat. And the third thing is that they were given good Babylonian names as part of this program. They would no longer be known by their own uh, names that their parents had given them. But now their Babylonian captors have, captives have, captors had given them new names. And we only know of four of the names that are listed here. Daniel becomes Belteshazzar. Hananiah becomes Shadrach, Mishael became Meshach, and Azariah became Abednego. And in each case, these young men had had names that told of the glory and honor of God, and instead the Babylonians took those names away from them and gave them names that would glorify and honor their gods. And we don't know for sure, because the Bible doesn't really say, it doesn't say here, but it stands to reason that all of the captives would have gone through the same process. These are just the names that these four were given. This was all a part of the program to wipe out their previous existence and turn them into the servants of the king of Babylon. Teach them all about the Chaldean ways, give them food so wonderful that they would have a sense of obligation to their captors and give them names to, er- to basically erase all traces of their past life. And for these young kids, for the majority of them, this turned out to be a very successful program. Because out of all that were taken, we only read about four of them who are going to, will- going to be willing to take a stand against what was going on. And so we left off last week in verse 8 of chapter 1, where we were first introduced to Daniel, and we just got a glimpse of his uncompromising character, which we'll look at in more detail today. So look with me again at verse 8. It says, But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. Now, verse 8 is a very pivotal verse um, in the life of Daniel. Because this one verse really tells us all that we need to know about the character of Daniel. In fact, I could take us through an entire lesson just on this one verse. But, and I was tempted to do so, but I, I'll refrain from doing that this morning. But see what it says here. Under these incredible circumstances, Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself. Another way in which this can be translated is Daniel purposed in his heart. This was a firm conviction of Daniel's. He purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself, that he would not pollute himself. This 15-year-old kid looked at all that was going on around him, and there was no question in his mind, I cannot eat the food of the king, and I cannot drink the king's wine. Daniel knew that if he partook of the food and the drink that the Chaldeans were going to give him, as rich and as delicious as it would have been, it would defile him, it says. Now, how would it do that? What was wrong with this food? Was the food bad? Was it drugged or tainted in some way? No, the food was fine. It was the stuff that the king ate, right? The king wasn't eating garbage. The king was eating good stuff. It wasn't bad. It wasn't unhealthy. This wasn't Daniel deciding, you know what, I don't need fried or fatty foods, and I'm going to go on a strict diet. Nor was it a biblical case for becoming vegan or vegetarian, as as some make this out to be. It wasn't anything like that. So what was the problem? Well, there were two things that were wrong with the food. The first thing was that the food and the drink would have been offered to the Babylonian gods before consumption. 
It was common to offer a portion of a meal to the gods before eating it. This was the practice in many, many pagan cultures throughout history. In fact, even up into the first century AD, this same practice was still going on in some places because Paul dealt with this in the Corinthian church. In the early church, people could still buy food that had been sacrificed to idols, and Paul had to address that in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 as a matter of Christian liberty because it had become an issue in Corinth. And it's that same type of practice that would have been done here as well in Daniel's day. Both the food and the wine would have been offered to some Babylonian god. So part of the situation that Daniel was dealing with involved that. To go ahead and partake of this food could be seen as acceptance of the authority of the Babylonian gods. And Daniel giving approval of that practice. And so Daniel knew in his heart that he could not be a part of that in any way, and he had to distance himself from that. But another problem had to do with the food itself. The eating of certain types of foods was contrary to the Mosaic law. God had given strict instructions on the preparing and eating of food to the people of Israel. And Daniel could not risk partaking of food that wasn't properly prepared and prepared according to God's word. Not to mention that there were certain foods that the law forbade outright. For example, pork was held as a, as a delicacy in Babylon. So Daniel had a very baconless life, which I can't even understand. But, but that was the, the case. Daniel could have nothing to do with it. So while this may have looked like a grand gesture on the part of their Chaldean hosts and would probably have been a wonderful, wonderfully enjoyable meal, Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself. He could not partake of that. Turn over with me for just a minute to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Mark. Here we see what's really at issue here. It wasn't that the food and the wine itself were the issue. The physical substance of the food and the wine. In fact, the Mosaic Law really didn't have any restrictions on wine at all for the everyday life of the common Israelite. There were some restrictions for those in certain positions or, or those that had taken certain vows, but not in the course of everyday living was there a restriction on wine. But overall, the foods themselves are not really the problem. So what is? Well, Mark chapter 7, sorry, I didn't tell you the chapter. Mark chapter 7, Jesus is speaking to the multitude about whether or not certain foods can defile someone. Almost the same issue is what it sounds like. And Jesus tells them in verse 15, There is nothing outside the man which going into him can defile him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. And so he makes this statement to the crowd, and then down in verse 18, skip a couple of verses here, he has to explain what he meant to his own disciples. And he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated? Thus he declared all foods clean. So what's he saying here? The piece of food that is eaten isn't what's really at issue. You eat a piece of food, it goes into your stomach, it gets digested, it's eliminated. That's true whether it's fish, whether it's pork, whether it's vegetables, whether it's anything else. Now look at verse 20, where he gets to the crux of the issue. 
And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. What is it that defiles us? It's the evil deeds that proceed from the heart. Sin comes from within, not from without. Sin does not come at us from the outside. It comes from inside of us. It is a matter of the heart. The food itself wasn't going to harm or defile Daniel. The defilement would have come from Daniel disobeying God's word. He would have been defiled by compromising on what he knew God had commanded him to do and to refrain from. That defilement would have come from Daniel's own heart if he had decided that he could take the easy way out. If he had decided that he could give in on just this one little issue. It's just a piece of meat. It's just a little wine. But instead, what came out of Daniel's heart? Out of Daniel's heart came the conviction that he could not disobey the word of God. He had a resolute purpose that he could not pollute himself by eating the king's food and thus disobeying the Lord. And that's what's truly remarkable about this young man, Daniel. Daniel knew this, even at this young age. Daniel had been taught enough to know what God's word says. And that kind of puts a burden on us as parents, doesn't it? For those of us that are parents here. How many of us would be confident that when our kids go out into the world, go off to college where they might teach, or where they might, where the college might not teach things that, they, that we know to be particularly biblical? I don't think that's a stretch to say, do you? That they would know God's word to the point where they could discern right from wrong. That's one of the jobs of parents, to instruct our kids in his word so that when they are put in those types of situations, Daniel and his friends being out completely on their own, that they can make these same types of decisions. People like statistics. Here's a statistic for you. You know, people like to say, well, you know, when Christian kids leave the home, certain percent keep going to church or things like that. Here's a statistic. In Daniel's class... 66 kids made the wrong decision while four made the right one. That's less than a 6% success rate for the decisions here. That's not a great statistic, is it? But Daniel's parents apparently did a good job with, with teaching Daniel what he needed to be taught. Now, Daniel has this conviction, so what does he do about it? It's one thing to have a conviction, but Daniel wasn't silent about it. No, he did something about it. It says, so he sought permission back in Daniel. I don't remember where, where we left off. But back in Daniel, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Daniel doesn't cover it up, nor does he sugarcoat it. He doesn't do anything underhanded or dishonest here, trying to hide food, trying to trick the guards. He doesn't do any of that. What does he do? He goes right up to Ashpenaz, the chief of the, of the officials, the man that the king himself had told to take these guys captive, told to put through this program, told to feed them this food. Daniel goes up to him and asks for permission 
to not defile himself. And, and you have to wonder how that conversation went with Ashpenaz. Uh, Ashpenaz, sir, thank you for the offer for the stuff that the king eats, but you know, that's great wine and that's rich food, but that's defiling for me. Uh, it's an abomination to God, so I'd like to decline it. I can't eat that food. He would, it, it comes off as Daniel saying, well, you know, that stuff, that's, that's great for the king, but that's not good enough for me, right? This is a very bold request that Daniel's making here, but he doesn't shy away. He comes right out and, and says this. He comes right out and, and declines it. That's right. Um, that right there is a testimony of itself, a part of Daniel's testimony in front of these pagan captors, these ungodly people. Daniel was not ashamed of his God, and he stood up for that. So now we have the setup. And we know the godly character of this young man, Daniel. How are these young guys going to work how, to get out of this? How is this all going to work out? Well, the first two words of verse 9 really tell us all that we need to know about how this is going to work out. Now, God. We now come to the point of this account where we see who is really at work here. This is all going to happen according to how God wants it to happen. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. Here's this man, Ashpenaz, who has been commanded by the king himself to feed these youths this certain type of food, and yet he's taking a liking to Daniel. He has compassion for him. He looks upon Daniel with favor. Why? Well, Daniel was a great kid. Well, I'm sure he was a great kid. Daniel had conviction. Everybody loves someone with conviction. Well, that's probably true. He was smart and charismatic. Well, yes, he was smart and charismatic. He was all those things, but none of those things are why Ashpenaz likes Daniel. Ashpenaz liked Daniel because God wanted him to. God granted Daniel favor and compassion in Ashpenaz's sight. It's important that we note that God is the one orchestrating Daniel's life, even at this early age. Daniel wasn't someone who had made something of himself, and then God looked down and said, you know, I could really use someone with Daniel's skills. I could really use someone with that drive and determination. No, Daniel will end up being a successful man in his own right because God wanted Daniel to be successful. And some might say, well, Daniel only asked him because he knew that he had this special bond. He knew that he had this connection with Ashpenaz. But I don't think that's the case here because Daniel knew, Daniel asked because he knew what was right. Daniel had to ask this right away. There wasn't time that he could have um, spent building this bond. And God caused Ashpenaz to respond in a positive way. Now in verse 10, we see Ashpenaz's response. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has appointed you your food and your drink, for why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. So Ashpenaz has this compassion for Daniel, and so his response is no. Well, now wait a minute. How is that compassion and favorable if he tells him no? Well, he tells him no, but... He doesn't really tell him no, right? What he does is he doesn't tell him yes. He doesn't completely shut the door in Daniel's face. He tells Daniel his dilemma. 
he explains to him that he's putting him in a difficult situation with his request. What could Ashpenaz have said to Daniel? Shut up and go eat your food, right? He could have said that. What's that? Exactly. But he doesn't say that. I mean, the captor, he was the captor. Daniel was the prisoner here. He didn't have to explain or reason with him at all. But instead, he tells him his problem. Well, what was the problem? The problem is, that, is with the person that they're dealing with, right? The problem is with King Nebuchadnezzar. It was the king who gave Ashpenaz his orders. It was the king who wanted these youths prepared to serve in the court. It was the king who made uh, the food from his own table available for them to eat for the next three years. So if the king noticed a difference in Daniel and his friend's physical appearance, who would be to blame? Whoever it was who didn't obey the commands, and that would be Ashpenaz. It would be his head, quite literally, on the line here. So as he told Daniel, he's afraid to just say yes to the request. But Daniel doesn't give up, right? I mean, he, Daniel goes to this guy, and the guy basically tells him, you know, there's a problem with that. It's not going to be easy. And, and how easy would it, would it have been for Daniel to just be, well, you know, I tried. But that's not what he does. He doesn't give up. He doesn't resort to deceit or rebellion. He remains persistent. Look at verse 11. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now stop there for a second. Here we see two things just in this part of the verse. First, let me just mention that we get the first glimpse here that the, the other three were involved in this request. In fact, we did have a little evidence of it earlier back in verse 10 when Ashpenaz made reference to seeing your faces looking more haggard. Uh, it's obvious from that that Daniel's request wasn't just for himself. He wasn't just asking this for himself, but for Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah as well. But back to the main topic, what does Daniel do? He goes to someone else. Ashpenaz says, I have a problem with this, so Daniel goes to someone else. Now, we might at first think, well, if, if the commander doesn't agree, then I'll go over his head, right? Isn't that what we would normally do? Well, I don't get the answer I want from this guy. Who's your boss? But that's not what happens. Because who was Ashpenaz's boss? It was Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel wasn't about to go to Nebuchadnezzar. Well, I don't know, maybe he would have, but, but he doesn't. So instead, Daniel takes a different approach. He goes to someone below the commander. He goes to the guy next in line. Ashpenaz was the commander of the, the officials, the eunuchs, and as such, he had a lot of guys working for him. So apparently in this program, it was set up that Ashpenaz didn't, didn't deal directly with these Jews from, uh, from Judah. Uh, and if there were as many as 70 or so, that would make sense, right? He wasn't the guy taking care of all these guys himself. So he had middle management. He had overseers that were responsible for smaller groups. So what, my, what most likely is going on here is that Daniel realized that the solution to Ashpenaz's problem was to provide him with some kind of, of buffer. Provide him with a way out. You see, the overseer wasn't directly responsible to the king. He reported to Ashpenaz. And as such, if these four young men were looking haggard from not eating the king's food, Ashpenaz wasn't as likely to take this guy's head for that. This was a much safer route for him to go. But more than that, Daniel also had devised a plan. Daniel had devised a way in which no one was really at risk and everyone could come away with their head still attached. 
So in verses 12 to 13, we see Daniel's alternative. Look, look at verse 12. He says, please test your servants for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. So for the next 10 days, he asks that he and his friends be allowed to try out a different diet. That they be allowed to eat vegetables and drink water. Now the vegetables that he's asking here for here are really a, a kind of pulse. Uh, a mixture of seeds and grains and maybe beans of some sort. And really, this would be the stuff that the poor people ate. The stuff that those who couldn't afford to eat meat uh, would have on a regular daily basis. And the water, once again, was something that only those who couldn't afford wine would drink. So Daniel, what he's asking for here is the most basic, the simplest diet that he could get. But this goes beyond just being simple. This wasn't Daniel just trying to make his request as easy as possible for the captors or or cost less or anything like that. I think Daniel is going to an extreme here for a reason. Daniel is asking for he and his friends to be as far removed from the possibility of being defiled as they can possibly get. He is asking for the option of being completely set apart from what the other youths are getting completely set apart from the possibility of even being associated with the foods that they're eating. What was he doing? This was a statement to the Babylonians, as well as to the other Jewish youths, that they were going to follow a higher standard. He wasn't interested in skirting around the edges and keeping himself as close to the others as possible without going over the edge. He wasn't interested in, oh, give me a plate of most of the food, but I'll pick a few things off and I'll just eat some things that I think might have been, or I'll say a little prayer over them. No, he wasn't coming up with that detail of a plan. He wasn't trying to get as close to it as possible. He was trying to stay as far removed from it as he possibly could. Sometimes as believers, I think we have a tendency to do that at times, right? God's word says this, and I'll do just enough to be in compliance with what God's word says. Or it says, stay away from this. This is something that you shouldn't have anything to do with. And I I like to bring my toe just this close to the line, but I don't go over. I make sure I don't go over, but I, I get as close to it as I possibly can. But I'll stop myself just short. Why go there at all? God says, don't do this. I should be going headlong the other direction as fast as I possibly can. That's what Daniel is doing here. He was interested in keeping himself as far away from that line as he possibly could. That's the food that will defile me. I'm going to eat something that doesn't have any association with that food. Daniel wanted no part of of this aspect of the Babylonian lifestyle or even the appearance of it in his own life. So he asks for nothing but vegetables and water. And then he goes on in verse 13, part of the test. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence in the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. So here's the deal. Daniel didn't want the king's food, the rich meat and potatoes portion. He wanted these vegetables, these seeds and grains and and beans. 
He didn't want the king's wine. He wanted nothing but water. And then after 10 days, he wants the overseer to check on their appearance. Take a look. Take a look at what you see. See how we compare to these other guys. Think about this for a minute. Think about this in terms of our foods today. This sounds like Daniel wants to go on a diet, doesn't it? In fact, people call this the Daniel diet. There's, and don't get me started on the Daniel diet. It's, um, I don't even know for sure exactly what the Daniel diet is, but I know that this is not prescribing a Daniel diet. But this sounds like he's going on a diet. This doesn't really sound like something that anyone with the desire to have themselves look as healthy or even healthier than someone else would put themselves through, right? I mean, this doesn't sound like something that's going to make you look healthy, not when compared to the other food that they might eat. What does Daniel think is going to happen here? He thinks that God is going to provide. That God is going to continue to take care of him. This is the faithfulness of Daniel. This test shows the faithfulness of Daniel. Daniel was committing to living He was committed to living a holy life, and he had no doubt that God would honor that commitment. You know what? In this world, faith oftentimes can be confused for stupidity. You know that? And I know that sounds bad to say that. But keep in mind that the things of God are foolishness or stupidity to the world. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul talks about that. And when we're not careful, even as believers, we sometimes think that way. Here is Daniel wanting to eat this mush for 10 days and be compared to other youths. And even we would think, Daniel, that's, that's dumb. That's not what you want to eat to, in order to look healthy and strong after 10 days. Noah spent 100 years building an ark when it had never even rained. Joshua kept marching his army around Jericho, around and around and around and around, over and over again. On the surface, those things don't look like wise things to do. But what's the common theme in all of them? They were all trusting in God. They all believed God. Daniel had an unwavering faith. He didn't know how God was going to do it, but he was confident that he would do it. All that Daniel knew for sure was that he could not defile himself. And he had to do something to make sure he set himself apart uh, from that, that food, from that edge. And Daniel had faith, faith through the point where he asks for this test. So we come to verse 14. We see the results of this test and how God honors Daniel's conviction. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. So the overseer agrees. Again, he doesn't have as much to lose. He may not see this really as much of a risk, if you think about it. There's little chance that Ashpenaz is going to have his head if these kids don't look all that healthy after 10 days. And in his mind, the worst that can happen is that he makes them eat the food that they were supposed to eat anyway, right? After 10 days, okay. It's not looking like it's working out so well, so now you're going to eat the food. But he grants them this test, and they eat this food the way that they've requested to eat for 10 days. And we see the result in verse 15. And at the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. 
So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. So God blesses them. After 10 days, they look better. It says they are fatter than the rest. And this doesn't necessarily mean that they got fat from eating these vegetables, uh, but it's really a way to say that they looked healthier. There was a marked difference between them and the other youths than the ones that had compromised. And there's debate here on whether or not this was supernatural or whether they just picked the healthier diet and then you go back to the whole Daniel diet thing. But I don't think there's any question that God was at work here. After just 10 days, do you really think that there would be that big of a difference in someone's physical appearance? And I know we just got out of Christmas, so after 10 days, yeah, there can be a difference in people's... But eating this type of food, do you really think there can be that big of a difference? If anything, eating just vegetables, they would look skinnier, maybe even a little lethargic, especially if they weren't accustomed to that kind of diet. But God made it so that they were healthier and that it showed that they were obviously healthier than these other guys. Some wonder if instead of making these four look healthy, he actually made the rest of them look sick in some way. And so they looked healthy in comparison. But I don't think that explains um, then how they would continue, have been able to continue to eat this way for three years. Because the overseer took their food away and their Um, And this was their diet for the rest of the time that they were in this program. And that's some endurance that these guys had. Three years of eating this diet while the others around them would eat from the king's table. Would we have that kind of endurance? I mean, it's one thing to make a stand at one point in time, but after three years, doesn't sometimes our conviction start to dull down a little bit? But no, they were committed to this, to eating this way. So God worked it out for them. He honored their conviction, their faithfulness, and he remained faithful to them as well. And that continued on into other areas as well. Look at verse 17. And as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Daniel and his friends passed this test. They, re, they remain faithful, and the result was blessings from God. They had knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. They made the dean's list. They were part of the National Honor Society, whatever, whatever you want to say, whatever they had back in the Babylonian program. They excelled in their studies, and they came through the education process with flying colors. And Daniel even went further. Daniel, it says, was even able to understand all kinds of visions and dreams. Daniel excelled above even uh, his other three companions. He didn't just have the ability to know all sorts of earthly wisdom, but he also had the ability to understand things from the supernatural realm. Now, this isn't something that the Chaldeans taught him, right? This was God blessing him in this. The Chaldean scholars also claimed to be able to know these things, right? This would, this would have been part of Chaldean training. Um, in fact, they prided themselves on their ability to understand visions and dreams. They would have books 
on interpreting these things. They would keep books on dreams and, and how to interpret them and what certain things meant and things like that. And they would um, keep records of these visions and dreams and their attempts to interpret them. But you know what that was? That, that wasn't godly wisdom on their part. That was just guesswork. Oh, you had this dream and you, had, you saw a bird flying from tree to tree. Well, that means this. Because, I don't know, sounds good. That's what they would do. And then if they kept books and they could be consistent in it, then they could supposedly interpret these things. But we see that all the time today too. We see you know, people that say they're mediums, people that do all other types of things as well. They can't really interpret these things. But here, Daniel was able to do this, and there was a, a key difference. There was an advantage that Daniel had over these other so-called wise men. And we saw it at the top of the verse. This is, this is what makes this key, where it says, and as for these four youths, God gave them. Once again, we see God's involvement here. The knowledge and intelligence that they had, the ability that Daniel had to interpret dreams, this was God-given. It was the blessing of God in their lives. Were they smart guys? Sure they were. But we can never discount the working of God in our, in, in our lives in all areas. Could, could they have gone through this program, come out at the top of their class and stood back at the end of, as they're standing there in their graduation robes or whatever it was they had? I, I kind of doubt they had a graduation ceremony, but who knows. But stood back and thought to themselves, wow, look at how smart I am. Look at what I'm able to do. They could have done that. Many people do that. But we should never forget just who it is that gives us our abilities, gives us our intelligence, gives us our successes. Instead of looking around at all that we've accomplished, we should keep in mind that it is God accomplishing something through us. King Nebuchadnezzar will get this lesson uh, when we get to chapter 4. So in verse 18, we see the end result of the program. Then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. So here, maybe this was their graduation ceremony. And the king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Hananiah, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. So here we are at the end of the three years. All the youths come in before the king. And this is the moment of truth. This is where the king finds out how well his program worked or didn't work. And so they all come in, and the king interviews them all, talks with them. And out of all of them, these 70 young men, um, and remember, right now they're at around, I mean, they could be even as young as 15 at this point, but they're around somewhere between 15 and 18 at this point in time. But out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Not one. They were head and shoulders above the rest of these guys. And what an amazing thing. Here are these four kids who stood their ground, remained firmly grounded in the word of truth, and lived an uncompromising life. And God blessed them for it in immeasurable ways. At the end of the verse... They entered the king's personal service. They stood before the king. They were made his, his personal servants. Daniel and his friends entered into prominent positions in the king's court. 
we really get a unique perspective of what's happening here. A perspective that shows us what happens in the life of a believer. On the one hand, we see the perspective of Daniel and his friends. They made a commitment. They approached the commander and the overseer. They had their faith in God in what he would do for them. On the other hand, we also see God's perspective. God granted Daniel favor in the commander's sight. God gave them intelligence and wisdom, worked to elevate them into prominent positions. We get to see both sides here. But you know what? There's no record or indication that God ever directly spoke to Daniel and his friends in any of this. This was not God telling Daniel what to do and Daniel following his instructions. You look at some of the other men of faith that we know of. You look at Noah. You look at Abraham, Moses, Samuel. In all of these cases, God communicated to them what they should do. As far as we know, Daniel had no assurances from God, no guarantees that this would work out as it did. God did not directly communicate this to him. He was working strictly on faith. And we see that. We see that in his faith, God blessed him. That should be a great encouragement to us. That's one of the things I really like about the book of Daniel, is that these guys act through faith, without God directly telling them these things. We'll get to um, the fiery furnace with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah being thrown in the fiery furnace, and they, they don't know how that's going to turn out. But they know how they need to respond. They know how they need to act in that situation. But this gives us perspective on how our lives are to be. Does God work in our lives to bring us blessings? Yes, he does. Do we need to respond to God's will in faith with an unwavering commitment? Yes, we do. There are both sides to this coin. God is working sovereignly in us, but we still have responsibilities to remain faithful to him. Well, for these four boys, the blessings didn't end there. In verse 20, we see that God continued to bless them throughout their lives. It says, and as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And this really goes back to what we said before about the differences between the wisdom that they had and what the other wise men in Babylon had. What was the difference? The difference was that their wisdom was God-given. They had wisdom from above, not a wisdom from the world. It was a godly wisdom, not human wisdom. The wisdom that came from above is infinitely greater than any wisdom that man can come up with. It says here that it was ten times greater. And I don't know for sure how you measure ten times, but I think the point here is that the point here is that the magicians and the conjurers in Babylon couldn't hold a candle to anything that these guys could do. They just didn't match up at all. When the king wanted wise counsel, when he wanted good advice, he knew where to go to these four godly young men who got their wisdom from God. Do you think that God had any influence on the goings-on in Babylon? You bet he did. When Nebuchadnezzar returned to Jerusalem for the second and third time and brought the rest of the Jews back 
with him, do you think that God was looking out for his chosen people by having his men in high positions in the government um, that, that was taking them in? Absolutely he was. Nebuchadnezzar came up with this great plan to have Jewish servants in his court, right? I mean, from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, this was his plan. Oh, and I've, I found four great guys. Daniel and his friends had the faith to obey God and set themselves up to be beyond reproach, but it was God that put Daniel and his friends in the service of the king of Babylon. Look at the last verse of the chapter. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Cyrus the king, the ruler of the Medo-Persian empire, which took over after it conquered Babylon. You know how many years later this was? 70 years. Do you remember how long the captivity of Judah was going to be? 70 years. Do you know who it was that gave orders for the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple in Ezra chapter 1? Cyrus, the king of Persia. This is God's sovereign plan fitting all together. This verse does not mean that Daniel only continued until this time because we'll see that he actually continued on after this and was influential even in the Medo-Persian Empire. But Daniel's physician in Babylon covered the entire 70-year period, and God had his man right where he wanted him that entire time. That's a long time, and Daniel remained faithful, uncompromising during that entire time and even beyond that. God blesses an uncompromising heart. God blesses those who are fully committed to him and in serving him in everything that they do. He really does. We see an example of that here firsthand. Through these young men who put most people to shame with their conviction. I mean, you, you look at the conviction of these guys, and I, I, I don't like comparing myself to Daniel, I'll be honest. Do we have this kind of conviction? Do we take our knowledge and purpose in our hearts to do the right thing with it? Do we put that conviction into action? Do we stand up for what's right, speak up when we should, move to action when we should? Would we have gone up to Ashpenaz in Daniel's situation? I mean, I was thinking of this also. There was Daniel and his friends, and there was the overseer that was directly responsible for them, and then there was the commander of the officials. Daniel goes right to the top. He didn't go to Nebuchadnezzar, but he goes right to the top. He doesn't bother with the, with the, the manager until he gets his answer from Ashpenaz. Daniel knew that this was important enough that he had to go right where he needed to go. He, he knew who he needed to engage here. So he put his conviction into action. How well does our conviction withstand the testing of our faith? What happens when the going gets tough? Do we collapse under the pressure, give in to our fatigue and quit the race? What happens when we, you know, I have this conviction and I'm, I'm ready to put it into action, but then all of a sudden I meet some resistance? Oh, I'm told no. Like when Daniel talks to Ashpenaz, well, I have some problems with that. Ah, I tried. It's really important to me, but I, I tried. No. Daniel finds another way. He keeps going. We need to be a people who are characterized by endurance and enduring faith, enduring conviction, living lives 
that are acceptable and useful to our Lord for his service so that he can use us through our lives for many years to come. Close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you. We thank you, Lord, again for this book. We thank you for our study in it. Just pray, Lord, that you would bless our time in the book of Daniel. Lord, we do thank you that we have examples like Daniel and and his three friends, and we thank you for, um, Lord, just just the the example that we have of them and, and how their situation with their faith and how you were not speaking directly to them, Lord, is so much like our own. We have your word. We know what your word says. We, we know that we need to be in your word and studying it daily, Lord, and we know that we need to be responding to it in a way that glorifies you. And I just pray, Lord, that we would be uh, people um, that have the faith that we need in it, Lord, the convictions that we have in it, Lord, and that we would live our lives according to what we know brings glory to you. I thank you, Lord, for uh, this time once again. I pray that you would be with us um, in the next hour as well. I just pray, Lord, that, that you would be glorified as we worship you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.